morning and welcome to Rising. Uh, we have a really stacked show for you today. A lot of guests. <laughs> Brianna, who are they? Well, Teslin Figueroa will join us to discuss how independent voters may influence midterm results. Plus, we'll talk with North Carolina's Green Party candidate for U.S. Senate, Matthew Ho, about his third party campaign. But first, President Biden spoke at Washington's D.C. Union Station last night at one of his final pitches to midterm voters, again about the threat to democracy posed by, quote, ultra-MAGA Republicans. Let's watch some of that. There are candidates running for every level of office in America, for governor, Congress, attorney general, secretary of state, who won't commit, they will not commit to accepting the results of elections that they're running in. This is a path to chaos in America. It's unprecedented. It's unlawful. And it's un-American. Ahead of the president's speech, Fox News' Peter Ducey pressed White House Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, Press Secretary Jean-Pierre, on the president's offensive against the GOP. Let's watch some of that. Thank you, Karine. Following up on your comment that there's an alarming number of Republicans who are saying they're not going to accept election results. Does that mean President Biden thinks it is a threat to democracy if somebody votes Republican? No, that's a, that's a ridiculous question, no. Why is that a ridiculous question? Because American people should have their right to vote for whomever they want. The voting is a sacred right. It is something that the president wants to protect at, at, at every turn, and he has done that. He's taken actions to protect the right to vote. And, uh, and you see uh, Democrats in Congress also doing the work to protect the right to vote. Noticeably absent from the president's speech last night was any mention of the economy. This even after the Fed raised interest rates by another 75 basis points for the fourth time um, this year. So the speech, the venue choice for the mm -hmm. speech was very interesting. Union Station, um, I used to live right around the corner from Union Station and fled the area after it was overtaken by um, encampments of homeless people during the pandemic. The station itself is a beautiful building um, that used to have, we'd be a bustling mall with lots of, um, uh, yeah, here's, some, uh, here's a photo of it from the outside. Uh, it used to be this bustling mall with lots of shops. Uh, many of them have closed. I think the vast majority of them have closed due to pandemic. They did, did not rebound after the pandemic. Uh, there, is a, there was a crime problem um, there. The, uh, there was a Starbucks there. The Starbucks pulled out of Union Station. They said, they, the reason they cited was that their customers and employees were being harassed by mentally unwell um, vagrants. So this would be a good venue for a speech about the economy, about what, what Biden is doing to get us back on track. And it said it was kind of monomaniacally focused on this election stuff, which is not that the election stuff isn't important. I, like, I get it. I, I also detest what many Republicans have said about elections, et cetera. But look, the people care about the economy. They yeah. care about m making ends meet, affording food, et cetera. And this is, a, this is a really, I mean, you know, who cares? It's a train station in Washington, D.C. But it really is kind of an example of life not having rebounded um, since the pandemic, in some senses, for some sectors, for some people. Yeah, look, I don't think it's a who cares at all. I, I remember when the Union Station was a very different place. My parents who met at Howard had their first date in the like, oh. American restaurant oh. that used yeah. to be in the middle of, of the main area on the platform that's been taken down a long time ago. And there have been a lot of, I think, changes in a declining way at Union Station, even since long before the pandemic. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, but that's, that's not an excuse. I think that is absolutely right that it is, it is shameful 
that people who come into our nation's capitals see how poorly we've treated so many people in our mental, uh, who are mentally ill and poor and who have congregated around that area. It's, it's, it should be embarrassing for the richest country in the history of the world to have this problem that's so easily addressed um, and to let it fester. Um, not, obviously, there's a moral component here, but even just in a, in a superficial like public embarrassment perspective, you would think that there would be an investment in taking care of the human beings that are living there, and there, and there isn't. So I do think, you know, more to the point, it is a disaster for Joe Biden to continue to make this weirdly kind of administrative ar argument about democracy when people have these substantive so economic deaf. concerns. It's so tone deaf. It comes to a point where it's very tone deaf. Not saying he's wrong about it, but to make that the focus, like who in the White House says, you know, let's fit an extra speech in by Biden here. We've got a week to go before midterms. Topics, ideas. So, Our democracy. Yeah, right, 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 right. It's like that, that cartoon where, where like two people have bad ideas, one person has a good idea, and you throw them out the window or something. You know that one? I um, don't. Look, no, it, I it, find it. I, it just, even Democrats I saw online were responding to this saying, mm, this isn't a good look. Who is this exactly for? I mean, really, that should be the question that's front and center on your mind when you start to sit down and write a speech. What are the constituency groups that you feel like you haven't reached yet? Who are the people mm -hmm. who aren't already coming out to vote? And Biden and the administration seem to think that what is going to galvanize people to the polls is this idea that Republicans pose a threat to the democratic process, which there has been a demonstrated right. series of actions that make it All the voters who care about that are already However, voting Democrat. All those all people the, are already voting, yeah. and people have other substantive things on their minds that are just getting yeah. ignored. Yeah, the people who are unsure, who are undecided, maybe there's not that many of them, but they are going to decide these razor, super close elections. And that, I don't think that's what they want to hear about. Yeah, it's almost insulting, frankly, yeah, to really not be talking is. about the substantive issues. In a new opinion piece for the Washington Post, columnist George Will argues that for the good of the country, President Biden and Vice President Harris should not seek a second term. George Will writes, quote, Biden is not just past his prime, even adequacy is in his past. And this is Harris's prime. In 2024, the Republican Party might present the nation with a presidential nominee whose unfitness has been demonstrated. After next Tuesday's sobering election results, Democrats should resolve not to insult and imperil the nation by doing likewise. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the, these are not uh, very exciting political figures, clearly, um, but worse than that, coming back to what else, who else is there? Yeah, it's worse than not being exciting. Not being exciting is Amy Klobuchar. What's going yeah. on with Joe Biden is a little bit of something different. He is past his prime in this, this interesting little shade there that Kamala is in her prime and still an unsatisfactory candidate is also true. She has never drawn votes at any point in her national political career. It's never been the case. She had to drop out of the Democratic primary before her home state because Andrew Yang, someone who was relatively unknown a year before those primaries, was polling higher than her in her home state where she was a senator in California with all of the name rec recognition and benefits in the world. Adding her to the ticket was a mistake. Biden thought that that somehow did something for black Americans. He obviously leaned on that, thinking that, um, you know, I don't basically have to give anything substantive to black Americans, uh, like following through my campaign promises on the $2,000 checks, the student debt cancellation, or the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. If Kamala's there, he has been running his administration under that premise. But look, black voters are leaving the Democratic Party. They're struggling to get black male voters in particular to turn out in Georgia. 
Kamala has attracted a couple of AKAs, people who are in her sorority, uh, who have pride, at, you know, bourgeois, more bourgeois black people like Kamala Harris, but it's a very small percentage of the country that you have appealed putting her on the ticket. And you could have been training somebody up who had a chance to have a real future in the Democratic Party. And he was, uh, he was put in the position of essentially had to pick someone who checked various boxes, who was a woman or minority or both. Oh, he put that on himself. Of the well, but he, he was pressured to do so, right? By, by the thrust, well, by the thrust of the questioning and the debates from the, from the media. Bernie, Bernie never committed to that. And he got in trouble for it. Yeah. I think he committed to maybe it probably will be a woman. Yes. But he didn't commit on a racial I, I basis. I think he said, like, in all likelihood. In all likelihood. But boxing. No, he did say it differently than Biden. He said, yeah. I, I'm going to pick, he essentially said, I'm going to pick the most qualified, the person who ideologically is most qualified right. to be my running mate. And in that pool of people, there are plenty of right. uh, of, of women, right. so I will choose one of them. But not that I will go. I would, I would avoid that to right. choose a woman. And, and Biden it was saying that by the way, it was different than what Biden said. It was. I didn't think it was meaningfully different because also the way that Biden framed it, it, it didn't look good for Kamala. It made her seem like mm -hmm. a pick that wasn't at all substantive and that was purely driven by identity. And the fact that she hasn't exactly risen to the occasion, it, it's not a good look. Mm. It's not a good look. Mm. All right, well, I'm looking forward to your radar, Brie. That will be next. Stay with us. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, you know how I'm always saying the most important issues in this country are top-down not left-right, right? That it's a big club and you're not in it. How big corporations like the insurance companies and healthcare companies that abandon you when you're sick, the defense contractors that fund endless wars, and the big tech companies that censure you all give to Republicans and Democrats alike to ensure that whatever party wins an election, they are guaranteed to come out on top. Well, a new story about AIPAC, the group founded to lobby American politicians for favorable policies toward the Israeli government, exposes just how thoroughly elites have rigged our political system to undermine your voting power and, in effect, choose American Congress members. You might recall me mentioning in an old radar that Summer Lee, a Pennsylvania progressive, won a tough primary race back in May, despite AIPAC's PAC spending over $2 million against Lee and $660,000 in favor of her centrist establishment opponent in the Democratic Party. APAC ads targeted her as not a real Democrat. Let's take a look. She calls herself a Democrat, but Summer Lee said she wanted to dismantle the Democratic Party. Dismantle it. And she's done everything in her power to do just that. When Joe Biden was running against Trump, Summer Lee attacked Biden's character, said he'd take us backwards. And Lee refused to support Biden's infrastructure plan that's now rebuilding bridges and roads in western Pennsylvania. Summer Lee, more interested in fighting Democrats than getting results. UDP is responsible for the content of this ad. Critical of Biden? wants to dismantle the warmongering Democratic Party. Honestly, I know that's supposed to be an attack ad, but she'd have my vote. All kidding aside, the valence of APAC's ad is clear. The Democratic Party is good and should be protected, and voters who share that ideology should vote for Lee's opponent. That being the case, how wild is it that APAC is now supporting Lee's Republican opponent in the general election? 
This story broke over the weekend. APAC, which as I explained in a recent radar, has tried to put its thumb on the scale against anti-establishment left candidates who are critical of Israel's treatment of Palestinians, is spending nearly $80,000 on Lee's opponent, who just happens to have the same name as the outgoing Democratic representative, Mike Doyle. They're literally trying to trick Democratic voters into voting for a familiar name. But of course, this Mike Doyle is a Republican. See, it seems APAC doesn't care who wins, D or R, as long as the candidate is the same type of milquetoast, pro-blob establishment figure that will routinely sign off on unbounded aid packages for Israel, ignoring the apartheid conditions of the Palestinian people. As a reminder, in Gaza, over 1.8 million Palestinians live in just 140 square miles of land in conditions described by former Prime Minister David Cameron as an open-air prison. To maintain or improve the geopolitical status quo, which includes a $38 billion overall military aid package signed by Obama, APAC has demonstrated that it is willing to smear anti-establishment candidates. Lee was accused of anti-Semitism, for example, for explaining how the phrase Israel has a right to defend itself had been used to justify atrocities against Palestinians. Of course, every country has a right to defend itself. But defending yourself isn't the issue when you're attacking worshipers at Al-Asqa Mosque, which is what Lee was responding to at the time of her tweets. Even Jewish politicians aren't safe. APAC spent millions to successfully defeat Andrew Lavin in the spring. It even went as far, uh, it even went to war, sorry, against <laughs> America's most popular Jewish politician, Bernard Sanders. Now, of course, anti-Semitism is real, but APAC's involvement in these races isn't actually about anti-Semitism or protecting the interests of Jewish Americans. It's an explicitly pro-Israel lobbying group, not a pro-Jewish lobbying group, and it expressly aims to promote the security interests of Israel. This should not be controversial. It's what their website advertises, but I suspect my saying this will bring some charges of anti-Semitism. Why? Because it is in fact an anti-Semitic trope to imply that Jewish people have dual loyalty. According to the World Jewish Congress, anti-Semites allege that the true allegiance of Jewish people is to their fellow Jews and that therefore they are inherently disloyal citizens and cannot be trusted and casting the Jew as the other. This anti-Semitic trope, which has existed for thousands of years, has been used to scapegoat, harass, and vilify Jews and at times, has even led to murder. So because of that trope, I wanna be really, really clear. APAC is a lobbying group that advocates pro-Israel policies to the legislative and executive branches of the United States. It is not, its mission statement is not about protecting the Jewish people at large. Its stated mission is to promote pro-Israeli policies. I'm pointing out that what is good for Israel as a country might not be in the best interest of some American Jews or American Goys is not anti-Semitic in and of itself. And yet, and yet, when AOC called APAC out for funding both sides of this Pennsylvania race, APAC slammed her as anti-Semitic. Her crime, saying, quote, shamefully, APAC is working for Republican control of Congress and further destabilization of US democracy. In response, executive director at StopAntiSemitism.org said, quote, the thinly veiled intent behind AOC's tweet to vilify a Jewish organization is crystal clear and further contributes to the vilification of American Jews. AOC's intentional isolation of APAC and her failure to call out the numerous bipartisan and left-leaning groups working to keep Justice Democrat candidate Summerlee out of office shows her true colors.
the rep continued. Now, in my humble Gentile opinion, sliding in American Jews as the party being vilified here, when the criticism is of a literal lobbying firm, is a pretty slick move that doesn't show a lot of respect for the diversity of thought among Jewish Americans, including many younger Jewish folks who tend to be more critical of Israeli foreign policy. But putting that aside, if you follow APAC's logic to its logical conclusion, AOC is forbidden from talking about how a super PAC is giving on both sides of an election, a super PAC that has donated more than almost every other group because the country it represents was established as a Jewish state. All these super PACs with their unlimited independent expenditures allowed by Citizens United are anti-democratic. They allow rich elites to buy and sell candidates, kill popular policies, and have more power than your measly one vote. And for all the crowing about saving democracy Democrats have been doing lately, this is an issue they should linger on a little longer. Campaign finance reform, after all, has bipartisan support. Elite lobbying groups like those that represent banks and pharmaceutical companies are putting the thumb on the scale of our elections, killing populist candidates who might vote for, say, a wealth tax, lowering prescription drug prices, or legalizing marijuana. It's a big club, and you're not in it. And until the bottom starts to band together against the top, regardless of religion, race, age, or sex, nothing is going to change. So you have to ask yourself, how comfortable are you with the status quo? Hmm. So before we get into the discussion, Hill TV producers reached out to APAC for comment, and they directed us to these tweets. In response to a tweet by Ilan Omar, we proudly stand with the overwhelming majority of the Democratic Party that backs a strong U.S. alliance. APAC works to elect pro-Israel candidates, including Democratic leadership and half the Progressive Caucus. We oppose Summer Lee because of her dangerous views on the U.S.-Israel alliance. APAC and our two million grassroots members proudly support progressive candidates, including 148 Democrats this cycle, who don't check their values at the door when it comes to standing with Israel. Yeah, I think that that statement kind of says it all. It is an expressly, expressly pro-Israel group that is, in fact, working to defeat a lot of progressive candidates who see progressivism as linked to also being progressive for the interests of Palestinians. And there's no reason that those interests have to be against each other. A lot of people are obviously very strongly hoping for a resolution to the conflict in the region that benefits all parties involved. But the idea of criticizing APAC's involvement when they're clearly trying to go after progressive candidates who articulate that there's a balance that needs to be struck here and you need to be able to support Palestinian interests as well, and disguising that behind this kind of these claims of anti-Semitism where there isn't any is a real problem. Yeah, I, I guess I would say I mean, is this deception, though? I mean, they, they are, it's the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, right? That's what it stands for. It doesn't represent itself as a group for, as like a, a Jewish advocacy group. It's a, it's a group that explicitly wants stronger ties between the U.S. and Israel um, that supports the funding we give to Israel. I do not support that. Um, you know, that's what they're doing. I, that's, they give money to candidates yeah, but, who support that aim. I don't, yeah, of like, course. But when they attack... When, when they attack a candidate on the basis of them being anti-Semitic, when the real issue is that they don't like the candidate's policies toward Israel, that's where the slippage occurs, because nobody wants to vote for an anti-Semitic candidate. And so they get a lot more traction out of saying, don't vote for Summer Lee, she's an anti-Semite. Don't vote for um, Nina Turner, she's an anti-Semite. Then if they say, don't vote for Nina Turner, she advocates for Palestinian rights. Do they call Nina Turner an anti-Semite? Oh, anti they absolutely. There were, there were 
scads of advertisements calling Anita Turner an anti-Semite. Mm. Just like there was these attacks that have gone after AOC simply for calling out APAC's involvement in this race. And the argument is, well, why isn't AOC calling out all these other groups? APAC's one of the biggest spinners in this race. And also, this is the first time APAC has gotten involved um, in a general election between a Republican and a Democrat after also having weighed in in the Democratic primary. Look, I so what are the political incentives here and how should voters respond? This is the, the, real, the real issue, the broader lobbying question. How should voters respond to the fact that in our democracy, big moneyed groups are weighing in to both pick the primary candidate and when they didn't like the primary candidate selection, switch to the other side of the aisle and try to make sure that the candidate doesn't win by supporting the person on the other side? That seems like, to me, fundamentally anti-democratic, and it's something it's, it's an exaggeration. Dem Democrats have done to help pick 100%. the more MAGA candidate in the in the 100%, race. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And look back at the day; it was people like John McCain who were advocating for campaign finance reform. This used to be something at the front front of mind for a lot of Americans, and just completely went out of the window yeah, post Obama I, era. I'm not a I'm not a major fan of. I feel like the campaign finance reform. It feels like a magic solution, but the most entrenched and powerful lobbying efforts find ways, the smart, then, then the very insidery, insidery people find some way to get around the structure you erect. Like the super PACs, PACs, that whole thing is a creation of, right, the, the McCain-Feingold era campaign finance stuff, which then most of that got stricken down by the Supreme Court anyway. But we just, we just created an entirely new alternative. You, you, you categorize your money and your advocacy as different. You're 501c3 instead of 501c4, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. It does. It seems like, especially given the wide latitude our Supreme Court believes that money counts as speech, yep. it does not seem possible to me to separate money from politics. You can make politics less appealing for moneyed interests to participate in by having the government, by having there be less at stake. That would be my solution. Well, I mean, I do think by limiting the government's power. I would disagree that if our government was gonna, wasn't going to give tons of money for Israel's defense, then there'd be less reason for APAC to get involved in these races. Well, no, I think that the part of we the can reason... We cut off our foreign donations. Well, I think, I mean, part of the reason that we do give so much money to Israeli defense is because of APEC. They're, they're effective. They're doing their job. But I do think that the bigger issue here is that there are campaign finance reforms that we can get into. We don't have time to get into them today. But people shouldn't treat this as a fait accompli. They should be pushing back against these corporations, lobbying groups, et cetera, who are, frankly, undermining democracy at least as much as anything that's, that uh, Donald Trump is being accused of at the moment. Uh, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay tuned. The White House has deleted a tweet seemingly giving the Biden administration credit for increases in Social Security payouts. The original tweet read, seniors are getting the biggest increase in their Social Security checks in 10 years through President Biden's leadership. Wow, imagine that. Twitter then added a context note to the tweet, which reads, seniors will receive a large Social Security benefit increase due to the annual cost of living adjustment, which is based on the high inflation rate. President Nixon in 1972 signed into law automatic benefit adjustments tied to the consumer price index. Now, Twitter has said that context is written by people who use Twitter and appears when other users rate it helpful. Now, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre had this to say when asked why the White House later deleted the tweet. 
The tweet was not complete. Usually when we put out a tweet, uh, we posted with context and it did not have that context. Uh, so in the past, we've pointed out that for the first time in, our, in over a decade, seniors' uh, Medicare premiums will, will decrease even as their social uh, security checks increase. That's a little bit of context that was not included. This means that seniors will have a chance to get ahead of inflation due to the rare combination of rising benefits and falling premiums. And, and let's not forget, as, as you've been hearing me say for the past few minutes about MAGA Republicans in Congress and their continued threat uh, to, to threaten Social Security and Medicare, proposing uh, proposing to them on the chop, proposing to put them on the chopping blocks uh, every five years, threatening benefits and to change uh, eligibility. So those are the types of contexts that would normally be uh, with a tweet like that. It did not it, it did not have that context. It was an incomplete tweet, as I just mentioned, uh, and so that's why you saw the digital team take that action. Uh, okay, a couple of things. Democrats should claim credit for lowering uh, Medicare premiums. Mm -hmm. That is a thing. Mm -hmm. This bragging about the idea of uh, seniors getting uh, more money because inflation has gone up and trying to cover that up saying, oh, it's just an incomplete tweet is obviously ridiculous. But here's the problem. The thing that you could really brag about is the thing that Nixon did back in the 70s, is make, is, which is to make sure that there is a cost of living update that's that t that pegs the cost right. of living to the CPI. Like right. that is what is protecting seniors right. from what, frankly, the rest of Americans are going through right now. And it's important because they don't have, they're particularly vulnerable, obviously, because they're not earning incomes anymore. They can't go out and just get another job. Although, regretfully, a lot of seniors do have to do that. What Democrats should be focusing on and arguing for is why isn't it that minimum wage and other kind of benefits aren't similarly linked to CPI? And also they should be foregrounding this argument about Republicans very explicitly saying that they are going to put Social Security and Medicare on the chopping block. Only getting that message out because you had a goof up on Twitter. Meanwhile, Biden, uh, Biden is making these speeches about democracy ending and MAGA Republicans, all of this. When you jump I saw you that cringe when together, the MAGA Republican it's, line it's ridiculous. was ridiculous. To the extent that there was something real that she right. said in there about the material interests of struggling Americans, it gets completely disguised in the middle of all of this save democracy, MAGA Republican stuff that's going to cause a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, to tune out. Right. You know, it's interesting, this kind of, con so the note, the, uh, the way in which context was added to this tweet by Twitter is very interesting, and people are only beginning to understand what's happening here. I've, this is a pilot program mm -hmm. that Twitter, it has nothing to do with Elon Musk takeover. Mm -hmm. This is a pilot program they came up with, I don't know, like a year or two years ago. Uh, I, I remember I, was, I spoke with Twitter, people at Twitter about it. They mm -hmm. wanted to tell me about it because they knew I had a lot of issues with fact-checking going on on other social media sites. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to show me this was their idea for fact-checking, and it has recently been rolled out to Twitter at large, so more people are seeing these notes now. They're very interesting, and they are extremely different from what other, from what Facebook, for instance, does with fact checking, which is deputize a handful of ideological extremists to correct Robbie, your ideological extremists. They, they're well. I, I have I have repeatedly had articles fact checked, and then they get blurred and they get deprioritized mm -hmm. on Facebook. And I've said no. They, they, their their claim that my factual argument is wrong is is itself false. And mm -hmm. I've appealed to Facebook because I know people there, and they said, "Oops, we're sorry." And they like that's happened a <laughs> bunch of times. Okay. So, I mean, they're no more, they're not objective. They're no more, yes, we, we all are ideologically extreme in some ways, that's, but they're not, they're in the frame. They're not referees. Okay. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> sure, sure. So how does this Twitter work? is different with this program. So anyone can do this. Anyone can add a note of context to a tweet 
And then someone else could add a note of context to your note. And people vote. And people say, well, I like this note because it's relevant and it includes a high quality link and this is really helping me out. Or you could say, this is terrible. It'll get downvoted, et cetera. It's more, um, it's a curated user based sort of thing, more like Wikipedia. Right. Which is, in fact, I, I know people have screamed at me in the comments on the show for saying this, but <laughs> Wikipedia is a more reliable, so there's less information, misinformation on, yeah. on Wikipedia than any other social media site. But, but it, this is good because it's not expert-based. It's right. not, no expert is saying, this is the truth, you're not allowed to disagree with me. It's, 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 it's democratized, mm -hmm. user-based and it works better. And that is the energy Twitter has tapped into with this program. And, now, and, you're, and it can be deployed against, against Democratic talking points as well. And I'm seeing kind of Democrats going, wait, we don't like this feeling. Right. We don't like getting fact-checked. Right. Well, how many users, like how, how, what does it take to get a comment like that to stick? How, what yeah. kind of like consensus does that represent? Totally unclear to me at this point. Yeah. I mean, again, this, this is a program that is being rolled out more broadly. I'm not sure everyone can see it. I don't know what, what phase it's at. I've been able to see these things for a while. Um, I don't know how, I, I, I frankly don't know, but yeah. I, it's interesting. Yeah, look, Twitter is fundamentally democratizing. It yes. has its problems, it has always had its problems, it always will has, have its problems. But the reason that normal people, non-blue check people love Twitter is because you could, it was always a place where you could come on, scream at your, fa your favorite or least favorite newscaster, scream at your favorite or least yep. favorite celebrity, engage directly. <laughs> Me? <laughs> Look, I'm in the middle of a pile no, you've been, I, should, I should not, I, I cannot fine. martyr, do, do the self-martyr. You've a, been screamed a at a lot lately. It's a good thing that that happens because I used to be yeah. a 500-person Twitter account that could directly engage with people like, you know, Todd Nisi Coates, and they would write back to me and, you know, it was productive. It felt empowering. And I think that the people who've always not liked Twitter were the gatekeepers. A lot of journalists, frankly, who were irritated that someone could come in and basically push back at, without needing to right. be like have a byline in the Wa uh, Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, Absolutely. what have you. Um, so I like this, I, the idea of this, but it's going to make people like the Biden administration, politicians, and journalists. And mainstream, yeah, mainstream journalists are getting so, you can see them sweating uh, <laughs> that, oh no, there's going to be some yeah. user-based yeah. pushback on their content. And right, there's already so many people say, oh, well, look what Elon Musk has done. Again, this is not yeah. a program that he has anything to do with. I think he said that he likes this. I do too. Yeah. This seems like a much better way to do it than uh, what, what other social media sites have done. And it's, man, the vibe is shifting yeah, on Twitter. There, and there, it's, there, is, there is a vibe good. shift. There's a vibe it shift. It is afoot. underway. And it feels like a positive vibe shift, I gotta say. It feels good. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Well, AOC and Elon Musk are having a war of words on Twitter, and we are here for it, <laughs> you and I. Uh, it's actually very entertaining, uh, thoughtful discussion in, in some ways. In some ways. Um, I mean, look, there's a, lot, there's a lot happening on Twitter right now. Not to make the whole world about Twitter, but it's where, it's where media folks and, and policy people uh, gather to discuss issued and the, the, the rules of the platform it's like it's all in flux right now and uh, a lot of interesting stuff is happening so AOC uh, first of all, she called she she uh, so she said this LMAO and a billionaire earnestly trying to sell people on the idea that free speech is actually an eight dollars a month subscription plan because mm -hmm. Elon right now is threatening to make the Twitter blue the Twitter check mark cost eight dollars a month mm -hmm. um, and then she got some pushback right from David Sachs. Right. Well, so first, I just want to stay with this for a second. Is 
she wrong? A lot of people agreed with her that the idea of charging people for the check mark was absurd, especially if you're saying that you're, you know, a lot of the allure of Elon Musk is that he's such a good businessman that he has become the richest man because of his business acumen. And now the best idea that he can come up with is to basically charge for a service that people are currently getting for free. And which also kind of undermines the whole point of verification because it's not supposed to be I'm important, it's supposed to be I'm real. Like the person mm -hmm. that is represented by my avatar and my name is a real person instead of an anonymous account. So on the on the merits, do you think that she's right that it is not the best business decision to try to charge for the blue check mark? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a good business decision or not. I don't know if it would cause more people to leave or would raise appropriate revenues. I don't think the idea of paying for um, for more, if you're just paying for the blue check mark, I think it's kind of not worth it. Right. Um, if you're paying for some kind of protection from whatever algorithmic punishment you think you've <laughs> suffered and I may have suffered and various people have suffered at various times, I, I think that would be very different. Yeah, like well, I'm not in Twitter jail tweets, now, so thank you. Already, <laughs> thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm having much, I, I don't know, and Elon Musk has said he that he hasn't changed anything, yeah. but I am actually having much more engagement these last few days. So I'm, then I'm tweeting consequently be more because of that. Yeah. So it might just be all in my head and it's self-reinforcing. I don't know. Yeah. I am picking up followers, some followers again. Yeah. You are as well. Yeah. Um, I, look, I don't think, but it's not. So then the, the criticism she got from David Sachs and other people is also not wrong in that well, yes, you do pay a fee for a lot of for access to streaming services, mm -hmm. access to other media companies. Mm -hmm. It's annoying, but like it's not free at the New York Times, mm -hmm. the Washington Post, et cetera. The Washington Post, also a media company yeah. owned by a billionaire, um, Jeff Bezos. Right. So, and AOC did follow up saying, well, it, there is, it is a problem that yeah. independent media, smaller newspapers have been put out of business by these, you know, mega billionaires who have bought up all of these enterprises. And that has, that has, legitimately affected our news coverage, and that's a problem, an antitrust issue that people should address. But that's a little bit sidestepping the issue. I think there's a sub substantive difference between Twitter and something like a newspaper, mm -hmm. which is that we create the content on Twitter. There is no staff of tweeters that is being paid in a newsroom in Times Square like exists for all of these legacy papers. And other kinds of apps like TikTok and Instagram have opportunities for users to monetize the content that they create for these companies so that they, they can then make money off of advertising. Twitter not only offers no opportunities for users who create the content to monetize that content, they're now charging them well, for even like being old, on the app. It's like that old, that old um, uh, quote, if the service is free, that means you're the product. You're the product. You're, you're the, the product. product. So if you're the product, do you also want to pay to be the product? Yeah. No. Well, I don't want to pay. But I don't want, I mean, I don't want the way things have been on Twitter uh, in the last few months and years where is, something is different. And, and, and this is my, why I'm, uh, the thing I'm most happy about Elon taking over yeah. is that I hope there will be more transparency around how these things work, uh, who's decided who's getting prioritized and all of that, because it, 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 we've now gone through several iterations. This has also been true of Facebook, um, where, where uh, my articles, my, my, what I'm sharing, uh, the distribution seems reduced. Um, I mean, this is not just unique to me. Sure, I don't sure. think it's a conspiracy at all. Yeah. There are other, other journalists I've spoken to. Facebook Facebook clearly has less interest in mm -hmm. fostering journalism in the last yeah. year and a half, which again, I'm not, I'm not saying these are necessarily wrong priorities. Maybe turning down how angry and alarmed we are all the time about what's going on in the world would be a good thing. I just want to know more about how they're weighing these choices and if yeah. they even understand the ramifications they're having. And the extent that Elon is a kind of eccentric outsider figure who's, who might 
reveal some of that. Yeah. I think it's something to celebrate. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking but of conspiracy theories. <laughs> AOC thinks Elon personally yeah. is punishing. So she also tweeted, uh, yeah, put up the one with the with the chicken head in it, or the rooster. <laughs> Yo, Elon, while I have your attention, why should people pay $8 just for their app to get bricked when they say something you don't like? This is what my app has looked like ever since my tweet upset you yesterday. What's good? Doesn't seem very free speech to me. Um, but this ha also happened to me the other day. Mm -hmm. Remember, I, mm -hmm. I, you, you, you I swear to my defense. I can testify that Robbie brought this up as an issue he was having with his account this week. Thank you. Risey witnessed it. Risey witnessed it. I, I can swear. So this is something that if, if AOC is getting targeted, then we have to wave the flag that Robbie is also being similarly targeted mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. by Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. The implication being obvious that, that this is just some kind of quirk that happened and yeah. she's not being targeted anyway. Yeah. Which I think is true for a lot of... That's why I was initially dismissive of some of the shadow banning. Mm -hmm. You'll see people say, I'm being shadow banned. People, can you see my tweets? Mm -hmm. like, yes, I'm reading your tweet mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. But people don't see my tweets. Well, like it, Twitter is curating a feed based on what people are interested in. I, I, it shows me more of things I've engaged with in the past. Some, maybe you're just not having tweets that people want to read. Like you can, that can happen to you. It can happen. So some to of you. it is that. But then we, you know, I've seen the charts you've showed. I, other Alice from Queens is a yep. Twitter account we enjoy that yep. uh, expressed a similar thing happening. That it's total. That it, there's an artificial component to it. Yes, and I wonder also. Remember, it used to just be a linear feed mm -hmm. before they started adjusting it for what it predicted your interests were. And I know that some people didn't like the linear feed. I personally always liked it for many reasons, including that sometimes you see something and then you click away you can, and you're trying you to come back to it. Linear feed. Yeah, I mean, and you can opt into it. But yeah. I, I wondered if having a non-linear feed basically obscures the extent to which people are having their feeds mm -hmm. over curated and, and they're, it basically covers, you know, covers the extent to which that they're suppressing certain accounts. Mm -hmm. So that's all to say it's a very difficult thing to make these kinds of charges because there is no transparency and yeah. it could be a lot of different causes for these kinds of things. But I think that this one is an overreach probably by AOC. It's interesting. Just before we go on this, I mean, the other thing I wanted to say about the difference between Twitter versus like the other media companies is that Twitter has this enormous enormously protective liability shield mm. um, because of Section 230 that other that media companies don't have. Mm. And this is a, a liability protection enjoyed by all online um, service platforms and, in fact, all online components of traditional media. So traditional media companies, to the extent they're online, yeah. like in their comment sections, et cetera, also have this protection. But the, the companies itself, like a traditional publisher, you know, you can sue... Simon and Schuster, or the Wall Street Journal, or the New York Times, or the Atlantic, if you are if you are libeled in an article, um, if you are libeled in a tweet, you can sue the person who wrote the tweet, mm -hmm. but not Twitter. Mm -hmm. Whereas you can sue the author of the Atlantic piece and the Atlantic itself, which yeah. is the more lucrative venture. Yeah. That is different because of this internet, the yeah. statute, Section Two Thirty. Now, I I am not. Many people are in favor of like just totally junking this statute that would cause all sorts of 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 liability pain mm -hmm. to for these companies to suffer. I am not at all persuaded that's a good idea yeah. because wouldn't they just then they would gatekeep speech much more aggressively yes. if they were live. That's what I don't understand. And it would make it very that. difficult for smaller yeah. websites, newer websites, to exist because it it's a huge monetary lift to have to hire people to do all of the scrutiny yeah. on the site to make sure they're not violating the law. I will say one interesting thing is that Elon Musk is realizing now. I think that the a lot of the curation, a lot of the censorship, had very little to do with. 
ideology. There was a lot of that, uh, the laptop scandal, all of that. Et cetera, but yeah. a, a lot of it also has to do with what is driven by advertisers. And when you have a site like this, uh, John, John Schwartz at uh, The Intercept pointed this out, that Elon Musk is painfully learning the basics of a left critique of media, which is that big corporate advertisers have never supported free speech. Why would they? They've always supported political correctness. It's just that it's right-wing PC, so Elon never noticed. This idea that it's, mm -hmm. it's corporate-driven sanitation to sell ads that has nothing to do with ideology. It's just whatever way the wind blows to make the broad public happy. So Yeah. He did. He had some kind of pull. Like, should yes. this be a free speech a free space? Speech or, or political a... correctness. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he, I think he had another one saying, like, is my purpose here to sell ads or, and is my, right. or, or to foster a, a free speech? Yeah. And you, you, I will... Be excited to learn how yeah. much those things um, are in uh, are in conflict. Look, he's a billionaire. He could be very popular by taking the hit and just saying, Twitter is free. I just believe so much in this platform that we're just going to hold this safe space, a safe space. For free speech. <laughs> For everyone. Screw the advertisers. Mm. Interesting. Well, we will be talking about this a lot more. I'm if sure you we Tell will. us if you hate this subject, because <laughs> we will talk about it forever. Uh, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay tuned. Democratic Ohio Senate candidate Representative Tim Ryan turned booze to applause after he brought up January 6th during a Fox News town hall with Republican challenger J.D. Vance Tuesday evening. Let's watch. They stormed the Capitol on January 6th. They beat up 140 police officers, killed, killed one. Okay, they killed, they killed one. <laughs> We all we all watched we all watched the we all watched the video we all watched the video and I let him finish please and I work I'm, I'm happy to have this conversation I'm not afraid to have this conversation these are the conversations we need to have in this country I welcome you guys let's just be respectful but I'm not afraid to stand here and defend my position um, on January 6th 140 cap I I sit on the subcommittee that funds the Capitol Police these are my friends 140 of them got hurt, and some of them still can't go back to work because they were beat up with lead pipes, they were sprayed with pepper spray, they were beaten with flagpoles. J.D. Vance raised money for the insurrectionists. He made several social media posts to raise money for them. Now, again, I don't care what your politics are, but Americans should say no. We have to say no to that. Meanwhile, on the topic of inflation and the economy, J.D. Vance had this to say about the Inflation Reduction Act. I think one of the good things that came out of the Inflation Reduction Act, maybe the only good thing that came out of the Inflation Reduction Act, is that it does empower Medicare to actually negotiate with some of these prescription drug providers on prescription drugs. That's a good thing. It brings down costs, brings down costs for families. And look, you know, we're the greatest country in the world. You should not be able to, you should not be unable to afford insulin in the greatest country in the world because you can't afford it. That's got to change. And I think that we're making good progress there. A new signal survey of a little over 1,500 likely voters in Ohio found Vance holds 48.2% uh, of the vote compared to Ryan's 43.7% with a margin of error that puts the two candidates in a statistical dead heat. Yeah, now this yeah. race isn't quite as close as the other ones we've been looking at very closely, Nevada, Pennsylvania, um, uh, Georgia, mm -hmm. and er, to some extent Arizona. I think J.D. Vance is pretty solidly ahead. Um, Ohio is a redder state than, uh, than, well, than Pennsylvania and then Arizona is now. 
So we'll see. Uh, but yeah, I, I give Tim Ryan props for doing that event. I, I thought his response was very good. It was respectful. Look, people, people don't want to be, I think, hectored about January 6th. They don't want to be made to feel like that's all they're allowed to care about and that their whole lives should be reoriented around how awful that was. Mm-hmm. And because it, it can be, that rhetoric can go over the top. But uh, he's not wrong. I, I t- take his point. Look, it was bad. It was embarrassing. I was there too. I, was, I covered it. It was, it was god awful. Uh, it was some really bad behavior um, to which I, it's reasonable to blame Trump to some degree. And, uh, and also Republican figures who are like obsessed with kind of doing, doing said, well, it was actually Democrats, or actually it was Ante- Antifa, or actually it wasn't that bad, or actually they were the patriots. Like, all of that is nonsense. We all know that's nonsense. Yeah, there was obsession and, on the uh, other side. I mean, I think pointing out that J.D. fans yeah. didn't just, you know, not focus on 1-6 or kind of like superficially yeah. defend them, but raised money to get people out of jail who broke right. the law, especially when you're coming from a conservative perspective and arguing that you're the one that respects law and order. Right, and they all went on for the one that Kamala Harris criminals to get out of jail. for, the, for the, the, the allegation that she was supported the bail funds for certain... Right. You're literally yeah. bailing, wanting to bail people I out, not on the basis bad. of being innocent or being yeah. you know wrongly accused but because yeah. you simply think that what they did the crime that they right. committed was the kind of crime we are, you, like. you know to be fair we're civil libertarians i think they deserve absolute due process of course some of them have been but held in solitary issue. confinement and i wouldn't hold i don't think anyone should right. be held but, in but solitary again that's not the issue and i think yeah. that tim uh, tim ryan was smart to bring up the actual issue which is that republicans tried to make some of these figures into kind of mascots for themselves we see charlie kirk right now um he was advocating for oh uh the the man who attacked um pelosi raising mm-hmm. money for his bill fund so this is a, a trend that's come out and i i think it's smart for Tim Ryan to start to right. try to exploit with the fact that Republicans, I think, have overstepped. I mean, Charlie in this Kirk phase. also said the other day Not that, that some, someone should bail out uh, De Pape yeah. and then find out, you know, what was actually going on there. Yeah. Like, and he gave an interview to the police saying that he was a crazy person yeah. who wanted to kidnap Nancy yeah. Pelosi because he's a crazy person. Yeah. Again, I think we've solved that yeah. one. Well, I also want to say I, I thought that it was refreshing to hear um, JD fans yes. speak positively yeah. about prescription yeah. drug reduction. Like I, I said this before. I think we will live in a better country if Republicans and Democrats can just agree that some things are basic goods, like lowering the cost of health care, instead of trying to use these as opportunities to snipe Well, and it's similar with the, with the price negotiation. I mean, it's similar to the argument I've made against the, um, uh, some of the student loan subsidies and the income-based repayment, that if you don't if you just subsidize this and you're just and you're going to forgive it, I mean, whatever, whatever you think about that policy, that's clearly going to have the effect of raising the prices when the, the when the the institution that gets to charge the prices, if you're covering the cost, they'll just raise the prices astronomically. Like we we concede that that's going to happen. We have to fix it. So that's of course going to be true. In this, it's the same principle in a sense. If the government is is covering it but is putting no constraints over what can be charged or no even ability to to discuss what's going to be charged, what's going to be charged is going to be outrageous because. Because the cost, the, the sticker price is confused. Is, yeah. is how it's being paid for is is very is is, is murkier. Is more is more diff- yeah. societally diffuse. Well, I, I certainly I certainly agree that we have to be like, very targeted about bringing down, down the cost of colleges. And it's very disappointing that Democrats haven't been talking about that. It's yeah. not. It isn't enough just to cancel student debt. Absolutely not. I don't want to say Bernie again, but that's why he packaged yeah. that plan along with a, a plan to make uh, public colleges uh, tuition free. 
Republican Representative Liz Cheney endorsed Ryan over Vance in the Senate race, according to Hill reporting. This is the latest sign of how far Cheney has fallen out with the Trump-dominated wing of her party. What do yeah. you think? Yeah. I mean, no surprise there. There's really no future for her in the Republican Party. Um, it's, it's not even, it, it's personality-based at this mm. point. She's made her whole personality um, opposition to, to Trump. And at, at this point, virtually no one who voted for the impeachment or to advance the impeachment charges to the Senate um, is, is faring well politically. Um, that Republicans did end up making that a pretty... A pretty significant line in the sand. Some of the senators, uh, like Romney, are more protected, uh, et cetera, but others are retiring. Um, Toomey, the Pennsylvania senator, is retiring. But yeah, she's uh, she she's she is more a, a Democrat rhetorically than anything else now. I mean, she should get a she could get a show on easily a show on MSNBC. Oh, she'll she'll be um, taking over for Whoopi at the View. Yeah, any yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, look, uh, and then, yeah. but it is always interesting how that kind of person that we're describing, the kind of Bush neocon, has the, has the falling out with Trump, then becomes more, you know, democratic, and then ends up very accurately just changing all of their views to be Democratic Party. Like you could, it is, it is, it, it's more conceivable to see her like headlining an event with. I, I could imagine her headlining an event with like Robin D'Angelo or something at this point. Well, like that because, is easier to conceive of, yeah. even though ostensibly she will say, no, I'm just a Republican conservative, but Trump is so unconscionable. I can't have anything to do with this. But she's going to update all her other policy views, except her foreign policy well, well, views, I, I think that a which lot are of, now well in keeping with the Democratic I think because a lot of parties. conservatives were kind of socially liberal. And now, when we say that today, we think of like a much more farther than the left. Yeah. But in terms of like, ah, oh, I like gay people. I think gay people should get married. Yeah. Like those are such mainstream well, she has a gay sister. opinions now. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, they weren't so happy to they embrace that They went back that and forth on that one, yeah. But these days, most Democrats, frankly, are pretty economically conservative at like the old school Republicans. There was never that much difference between the two, which is why I think this uh, anti-establishment valence has a, has a yeah. lot of a uh, possibility mm -hmm. on both sides of the aisle. Uh, well, we'll have more rising for you right after this. According to a new Marist NPR PBS NewsHour poll, man, these poll titles are getting long, <laughs> Republicans are more enthusiastic about upcoming midterms than both Democrats and independents. 84% of registered Republican voters said they were very interested in the election compared to 68% of Democrats and just 58% of independents. Mm. Meanwhile, a new Harris X poll reveals independent voters are more likely to say Republicans did a better job choosing candidates, with 33 choosing Republicans. Republicans compared to 28 for Democrats. One in four independent respondents, however, said neither party did a good job. So will either party be able to convince independents to turn up at the voting booth next week? Joining us now to discuss is host of Straight Shot No Chaser podcast, Teslin Figaro. Welcome back, Teslin. Always glad to be here. Thank you. So what, in your view, is the best pitch that should be made to independents right now? Yeah, it's really hard uh, to determine who is an independent. I am, by the way, uh, but I have been for the last decade. Uh, so really just throwing out a pitch uh, with less than seven days to go to the polls, I don't think that will happen. Uh, this is really just about using the pitch analogy, football analogy. It's about who uh, has literally, well, that's a baseball analogy, actually. <laughs> it really has been about who uh, has been able to throw the ball and who's been able to move the ball on policy. And so unfortunately, uh, this is just 
the reality. I was reading an article from Politico the other day uh, where uh, President Biden went to Florida and was talking about Social Security, uh, which he should be because that's very relative uh, to Florida. But uh, gov- uh, uh, Charlie Chris was talking about abortion, mm-hmm. uh, which is not uh, something that relates to seniors. And Florida is, a, as we know, a state uh, that's heavy po- heavily populated with seniors. So uh, Democrats are still off message. And I don't uh, know that that will change within the next seven days. So it seems that, you know, folks are just really just grasping, grasping for straws and hoping that people show up. Uh, but I will say this, because uh, everything's not doom and gloom. It is important to know that Georgia has uh, reportedly turned in more uh, voters have came to the polls early voting uh, more so uh, than in 2018. And so that was something, Bree, that I was not expecting uh, that has definitely happened, at least in the state of Georgia. So I, I guess it really depends on where you are. Yeah, we had a, a segment uh, today about the high turnout rate. It's 20% higher than it was uh, for early voting in 2018. The guest was a little reluctant to weigh in on whether or not he thought it would give, you know, bear out in positive outcomes for Democrats in particular. Uh, but you seem to think that that's a, a good sign for, for Democrats. Do you think that, are you, are you inclined to believe that um, Warnock and Abrams are similarly benefiting from that increased turnout? Do you think they're going to kind of win or lose in lockstep? Or could there be a situation where Abrams, who is performing less well in the polls, still succumbs while Warnock ekes it out? Yeah, I don't know why the other person was reluctant to chime in on it because we have the facts or previous at least data. It's always not it's, it's not always accurate, you know, to a T, as you know, it's not Bible. Uh, but we do know that early voting tends to uh, swing towards uh, the left. It tends to swing toward Democrats. And I also want to make this point because you'll hear this talking point a lot uh, that all oh, those are just absentee ballots. But that's not the case. Uh, there has actually been more in-person voting, uh, 1.5 million compared to 1.8 million on the same day of this of the same week Monday I'm referring to Monday actually uh, so even just the in-person voting not even counting the absentee ballots it is uh, historic uh, usually to lean towards uh, the left and lean towards Democrats. So based on the numbers, yeah, but we also know the Republicans show up same day and they early vote as well. And we cannot take for granted that all of the early voting that is typically leaning left, that some of those folks are not switching over. Uh, very interesting. I wish we had more time to talk about the lockstep thing um, because it was a little bit more clear uh, before when it was, you know, both for Warnock and Ossoff. But now uh, because there is two totally different candidates with Stacey Abrams and Warnock, and when I mean totally different candidates, I mean actually who they're going against, uh, and particularly Herschel Walker. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it will necessarily be a straight down, uh, you know, straight down Democrat uh, ballot that people will choose. But that's typically, you know, what we see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are folks who are starting to say, I'm going to vote issue by issue uh, and look at who is the best person for the job. And I don't know if that's necessarily always going to be governor and senator at the same time, because they're two different jobs. And I mm-hmm. encourage people to understand the difference between the, the two uh, jobs and to pick the right candidate for either or. Well, The Hill's Hannah Trudeau reports this week that progressives are critical of Democrats' strategy in recruiting rural voters. 2008, as liberals were expressing a rush of enthusiasm following the Obama victory, Republicans were already laying the groundwork in rural towns and counties meant to stretch beyond his administration, according to Trudeau. Progressives say Dems never quite caught up. Does that ring true to you, Teslin? 
Well, absolutely. But progressives are in no position to talk because progressives never caught up either. You know, so there's a lot of work uh, that mm -hmm. progressives need to do right now. Uh, there is really no progressive bench in 2024. If I were to ask you who is running in 2024, who would possibly uh, possibly run for president if, if uh, President Biden does not run again or who would possibly challenge him? Most progressives don't have an answer. So progressives also uh, not only have they not caught up, they, they haven't and exceeded it. They haven't caught up as well. So progressives need to worry about what progressives are bringing to the table. But I will say that, yes, uh, the GOP has made uh, a significant amount of uh, investment, not just in rural communities, but even in urban communities. I was watching last week that they have literally, and this is in particular when we talk about uh, the diversity vote, uh, they have invested over 30 plus uh, diversity centers. Uh, brick and mortar centers that are actually reaching out uh, to voters, uh, 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 voters in those particular uh, areas in Georgia, and over 20 of them, Bree, have been focused uh, directly on the Latino vote. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the GOP and you look at what they're doing to say, hey, we just need a little bit in order to shift the numbers, and then you ask Democrats, what are you doing in response? Their answer was, well, you know, we're putting a lot of money in radio and television. That's not a good enough answer. And to be clear to those in the comments, because I know the common consultant caucus of loves talking <laughs> about what they heard instead of what they know. The reality of it is those of us who have been on the left, the reason why I left the Democrat Party in 2010, we have always begged, begged, I mean, literally begged for them to really put the investments in those same types of centers in the community to engage year around. And I also encouraged uh, the Bernie Sanders movement to do it as well. When he lost in 2016, Bree, imagine if he would have kept those same organizers on the ground, in particular in, in uh, South Carolina, to actually work in the community. It would have been a much easier path for him in 2020. So we can only just continue to keep blaming the establishment and blaming the elite. Some of this really does have to do with on the ground and knocking on doors. And being on Twitter is not enough uh, to win a campaign. And the GOP, is, is they see that, they understand that, and they know they only need a slight edge in order to make a difference. Yeah, completely agree. The proof is in the pudding. Where Bernie did do that in Nevada, got there a year in advance and worked in the community, more results. He won the state. He won 70% of the Latino vote. He did not do that pretty much anywhere else in the country. Certainly didn't do that with the black community. And uh, now Joe Biden is the president of the United States of America. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Teslin. Thank you. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Unaffiliated voters are the largest demographic in North Carolina. If we unite, we will disrupt the status quo. I'm inviting everyone to critically read each candidate's platform. Look at the issues and don't make this about identity politics. Don't make this about Team Red versus Team Blue. Make your decision based on who you love and what will make their lives thrive. That was Matthew Ho, a Green Party candidate for uh, running for Senate in North Carolina, an Afghanistan war veteran and a former government official. He is hoping to serve the Tar Heel State with a mission to hold the government accountable, fight cli for climate change, protect abortion, uh, fight against climate change rather, <laughs> protect abortion, and get money out of politics. Ho gained notoriety back in 2009 when he stepped down from his government job in protest of the Afghanistan war. Some might peg him for a progressive, but according to Ho, the two-party system we have is harmful. Those aren't mutually exclusive things, of course. He joins us now to expand on that and to tell us more about his campaign. Good morning, Matthew. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me with you. 
So, you know, I think a lot of people are probably really taken by that campaign ad. It's, it's rare to hear someone, relatively rare at least, to hear someone on the broad left kind of call out identity politics in that express way. Say a little bit more about why you chose to put that in your campaign. Well, we've come across, so for us as a, as a minor party, independent grassroots campaign we have to get out there and talk to people we don't have the money to do the television ads like the democrats and republicans do so for us we have to go and, and literally meet people where they're at and so we go to a lot of events and festivals we did this in the spring we petitioned to get on the ballot we've done it this fall and all across the state you know from murphy to manio as we say here in north carolina uh, you hear the same three issues it, it's housing health care and the effect of the war on drugs, whether it's the mass incarceration piece or the overdose. Uh, mm -hmm. we, have about, we have 12 overdose deaths a day in North Carolina, just to give people an idea of what it's like here. Mm -hmm. So you, you continually hear this message over and over again. And when we're out there talking to people, we're, we're not hit with like the spoiler argument. We're not being accused of splitting the vote. Ralph Nader's name doesn't come up. I mean, out of 100 people I talk to, uh, you might come across that one time. Uh, the rest of the folks out there who are normal people who don't live their lives on Twitter, right, yeah. are uh, people who are dealing with the realities of our economy, of our society, of our changing climate, of uh, bipartisan policies, right, that have just, you know, particularly, say, the war on drugs. That's the issue that we really led with a lot because everywhere we're at, we are meeting people who have been affected by it. These are not people who are saying, hey, I just want to go get high in a park. These are people who said the war on drugs destroyed people I love. And, uh, you know, so that's the message we're leading with because that's what's connecting us to voters. And I believe what voters are finding missing uh, in their political choices now. Uh, it, that's wonderful to hear you talking about those issues that obviously that's an issue I care about a lot as libertarian as well. Mm -hmm. right. um, you know, are you talking to voters about how uh, guessing and gathering what, you know, your, your views on the subject might be? I assume they're probably pretty close to my own. You know, the, the need for having a less a less military uh, military response to draw, right. you know, letting people get medicine they need in a safe way. And then they would be less at risk of, of things like fentanyl when they would actually know what they're taking right. because they're not you know, doing it surreptitiously, illegally on a black market, et cetera. Um, I, I feel like that should be a message that would have real appeal to people. Oh, absolutely, Robbie. I mean, it's the idea of transitioning from this uh, law enforcement approach to a public health approach where we stop treating people who have substance abuse and addiction issues as criminals and, and treat them compassionately, you know, as our neighbors, right, as people who need medical care, who need help. Uh, you know, and, and, and it, again, it's both sides of it. You, you see both the mass incarceration piece and the overdose piece that is uh, just really uh, 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 causing such suffering. Uh, and uh, this has been going on for, 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 for decades. And people are tired. Uh, they're worn down. You couple this again with with the overhead that all Americans are paying for mm -hmm. health care, for education, for housing. Uh, you know, 60 percent of us live paycheck to paycheck, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is how you see this disaffection, this dismay with the current political system, because people connect the dots. They understand that people in Washington, D.C., people in the state houses, they are the ones that have not only put these policies in place, but allowed them to continue for decades, you know, to the ruin of tens of millions of American families and communities all across the country.
And how are the, uh, you know, something that so many third-party candidates face around um, the country, is, you know, ballot access issues, um, uh, pr you know, problems of, of that nature, you know, what are you facing in terms of that? And, you know, what are you hoping, you know, your, your campaign might achieve uh, in, in terms of, you know, building durable third parties and opportunities for third parties? Well, specifically, Matthew, we talked a couple of months ago about a, an effort to get you kicked off the ballot. And then right. there was some solidarity there you found with the Libertarian Party, right? Oh, absolutely. We had a tremendous amount of cooperation. And, and uh, I've done quite a bit with the Libertarian Party here. Uh, my opponent, Shannon Bray, who's running as a Libertarian candidate for, for uh, North Carolina for the U.S. Senate, I, I've said a number of times, if I wasn't on the ballot, I would vote for the Libertarian. Because Shannon Bray, we agree on a number of issues, such as ending the war on drugs, such as ending corporate subsidies, uh, things such as LGBTQIA rights, uh, those things we agree upon. Uh, but also, too, I understand that Shannon is a person who is not, his, uh, his positions are not motivated by money. They're not motivated by uh, corporate donations. And so he's a man of principle. And that's why I would vote him for him over my Democratic or Republican opponents. But certainly this past year, we had the experience where we had a petition to get on the ballot. We needed 14,000 signatures, we being the North Carolina Green Party. We uh, collected 22,500 signatures. We met all the deadlines, checked all the boxes, and then we went to be certified by the Democratic Party-controlled State Board of Elections. We were told we cannot certify you because we have questions about your petitioning process. No evidence was provided to us. We were allowed no, do, no due diligence or no, uh, 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 no ability of, of ours to inspect what they were talking about. And certainly no legal justification was provided to us. And so we had to go to federal court to be on the ballot. And we won in US District Court. We won in federal appeals court. And we also won in state court. And, but those are the reasons we are on the ballot as opposed to what would have happened if we didn't have that wherewithal, if we didn't have the resources to do that, which most independent or minor party campaigns don't have, uh, we would have been off the ballot simply because the party in power, the party that controls the, the, the governor's office, the Democrats, would have just not allowed us on the ballot for no other reason than they had unspecified questions. That's utterly criminal. And the leader of that party, Joe Biden, you know, just gave a speech last night about the importance of maintaining our democracy. democracy. How that's the sole and most important issue facing Americans. Well, you know, take the one step further, actually, the governor here in North Carolina is Roy Cooper, who's head of the Democratic Governors Association, which is the organization that gave, what, about $50 million to the most, uh, uh, most pro-Trump MAGA uh, candidates running in Republican primaries right. this year. So, right, you can see that connection. And it mm -hmm. reminds me of a poll that the New York Times put out this uh, last month, October, where they found that the top concern among voters, I think 68% of them, was political corruption. And not specifically the Mar-a-Lago uh, uh, classified document situation, January 6th, uh, what happened with us here in North Carolina, but more the continual uh, corporate capture of government, right? Yeah. The continued buying and selling of politicians by corporations, banks, and the wealthy, that's the political corruption that people are so upset by because that's what translates into, right, this suffering because of health care, housing, uh, education costs, the war on drugs, uh, inaction on the climate, uh, on and on and on. Yeah, I, look, I could talk wow. to you for a, a really long time. I... I, 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 I 
I think that people should definitely look into your story and definitely follow your campaign, support you if you are, or think about supporting you if they live in North Carolina, because it really is uh, criminal that uh, third-party candidates don't get the same kind of airing opportunities to mm. debate publicly, get as much press coverage, et cetera, and certainly and don't have, have as much And have these structural disadvantages put, yeah. in, put right. in, in their way by uh, our two-party yeah. duopoly. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on today, Matthew. Thank you very much, Bree and Robbie. I appreciate it. We'll have more rising for you after this. Libertarian candidate Mark Victor dropped out of the Arizona Senate race on Tuesday and encouraged voters to cast their ballots for the GOP candidate, Blake Masters, instead of Democrat Mark Kelly, saying, quote, Will he likely do some things that I'm not excited about? Yeah, I think so. Is he likely to do other things that I'm very happy with? Yes, there's no perfect choices here. I think we have to recognize that. Joining us now to discuss this and uh, all sorts of other libertarian candidates seeking office around the country is chair of the National Libertarian Party, Angela McArdle. Welcome, Angela. Hey there. Thanks for having me on. Yes, so great to hear from you. So I want to you know, start with this uh, question before we discuss some of the other candidates. Um, you know, the, the, the mainstream media will rail, or some other people, the Republicans will complain, Democrats will complain about you know, third parties, Libertarian Party, Green Party, et cetera, spo uh, serving as spoilers in races. You know, I always say, as a libertarian, I say, well, no one, our, our vote is not you know, owed to one of the, the two parties. Um, so I, I was a little disappointed to see this move um, from this candidate. You know, what do you make of, of what happened there? Well, I've been in contact with Mark and we haven't had a chance to hash it all out yet, but ultimately it's his decision. The mm -hmm. Libertarian Party of Arizona didn't have any control over whether or not Mark Victor stayed in the race. And while I appreciate a lot of Blake Masters' policy positions, obviously as the chair of the National Libertarian Party, I'm not able to endorse him. So. I wish everyone in Arizona the best of luck voting and to vote your conscience. And I hope that in the future, under my leadership, we can foster some better communication within the party so that people aren't disappointed and they don't have different expectations set about what candidates seek to achieve when they run for office. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this spoiler thing is perhaps the most troubling obstacle for third parties to overcome. I have been heartened to see that uh, Andrew Yang and the Forward Party campaign has really foregrounded their effort to advocate for ranked choice voting across the country, because there is something deeply hypocritical about, I mean, from my perspective, I've been mostly watching Democrats rile against um, uh, uh, third party spoilers, obviously, uh, since uh, Ralph Nader's famous example, uh, while at the same time blocking measures that would prevent spoilers uh, from happening in the first place. Um, and I have been aware of some efforts of third party uh, uh, third parties, rather, uh, Green parties uh, with the Libertarian Party working together to try to advocate for um, different kinds of voting systems, whether it's ranked choice voting or another one. Uh, how, how much is that a project that's being prioritized right now? Ranked choice voting is, is something that a lot of party members are interested in, but it is not at the top of my priority list right now because I need to focus on making sure our candidates are properly equipped to run elections and that our state parties are also properly equipped to support them. Um, I'm very optimistic about ranked choice voting, but I have yet to see the results of it and to see it bear fruit and really demonstrate that it's going to change the electoral outcome. I'm hesitant to give it a shining endorsement because 
for people who want to see ranked choice voting and then also combine it with like a top two system, which I'm not 100% sure that's what Andrew Yang is interested in, but it, it sounds like it is, that would essentially be what we have in California, which is basically one party rule and a terrible system. Mm. So I want to be cautious before I push that forward. In this case, though, what do you make of the fact that ostensibly the reason that the libertarian candidate has dropped out is because there is this pressure not to spoil a tight election? How do you get around candidates from doing that sort of thing? Since it, I mean, it obviously imperils the libertarian party's efforts here. Well, as a political party, our aim is to get candidates elected, but we also seek to push the Overton window in the direction of liberty and to force the other two parties to adopt more libertarian positions. So I'm not focused on spoiling races. I'm more focused on local elections and becoming the minor party in states where Democrats or Republicans have abandoned the state, like Alabama, for example. That's a, that's mm. a great example. But um, we also do need to have a paradigm shift in electoral politics so that people can understand you're not entitled to anyone else's vote. That's very unlibertarian. I know that conservatives don't like entitlement policies, and I wish that they would change their thinking when it comes to entitlement of other people's votes. So the uh, the there's a Pennsylvania there's a Pennsylvania libertarian candidate in that Senate race, um, uh, Eric Gerhard, who said uh, he told my colleague at Reason Magazine, Eric Bame, Eric asked him if he would similarly drop out or something like that. He said he would never do that. There's no value to that. That um, I, it's a hard no. It's never happening. Um, there's also a Senate uh, a libertarian Senate candidate um, in the Georgia race. Um, what you know, so what issues are the these candidates uh, running on, you know, what 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 issues that maybe the major parties are missing is the Libertarian Party trying to give voice to this cycle? Well, I think that Eric Gerhardt in Pennsylvania is correct to not want to to drop out, especially because look at look at Dr. Oz. I mean, the man is barely more articulate, in my opinion, than Fetterman. He's flip-flopped on gun policy. He's endorsed by the World Economic Forum. He hasn't been in Pennsylvania for very long. He, the fact that he can't beat Fetterman in a race is not anything that, that libertarians should be, you know, biting their nails over or clutching their pearls about. That's just a, a pitiful race. So mm -hmm. er Earhart is there to actually represent libertarianism. Uh, I don't think that Dr. Oz and Blake Masters have anything. They're, they're not close at all in ideology or policy. I understand that Blake Masters in Arizona has articulated some more libertarian talking points, and I know I appreciate that to a certain extent, but we're not seeing that in Pennsylvania. And I believe that's the same case in Georgia. From, from what I understand, the Georgia GOP is not liberty-minded. They're much more milquetoast neocon in their governance style. So I support our candidates who are running there. For someone like me who's not as familiar with the Republican, uh, sorry, with the Libertarian Party, I'm sorry, knee-jerk instincts, um, help me understand what you mean by more, more liberally, uh, liberty-minded. Well, we really want to push economic and personal freedom. So obviously we're opposed to things like lockdowns, we're opposed to vaccine mandates, but we're also very interested in economic freedom, deregulation, sound money. We don't want to see candidates get up there and say that they're going to fold under pressure and support inflationary spending. We don't wanna see people who are gonna praise the Federal Reserve or even begrudgingly push a yes vote when, we, when we're talking about printing trillions of dollars. That's not something that libertarians want. And, and to that extent, yes. 
And, be, and before we let you go, Angela, can you mention uh, 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 the, the Ukraine element to this? Because I, th I think this is a very distinguishing issue for uh, for libertarians. I'm, I'm sure there are many people in the Green Party probably expressing the, this sentiment as well. We, we had just interviewed someone from the Green Party. Um, you know, the, this total bipartisan buy-in among the Republican Democratic Party that there should be a blank check uh, for funding and continuing what's going on in Ukraine. There's almost no opposition in the Democratic Party. There was a little bit of opposition that had to get walked back. There's tiny opposition in the Republican Party. Maybe it's growing. I don't know. But, uh, but you know, what, what, what does the Libertarian Party have to say about that? We do not believe that the United States should be involving itself as a, in a proxy war between NATO and Russia. Uh, we absolutely feel for the people in Ukraine and people in Russia as well who have been impacted by this horrendous conflict. But we do not believe it's the United States business to get involved. And we should not be sending money over there. We should not be sending weapons, especially not money, considering that the Fed just hiked interest rates. People are feeling the pain at the grocery store, at the pump. It's a real slap in the face to Americans when we can't get a handout from our own government, but this people in Ukraine can. It's just not, it's not good policy and we don't support it. Well, it's a real pleasure to get to know you today, Angela. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Tomorrow on Rising, we're joined by Nick Morrow from Vote.org, and he'll weigh in on the latest early voting numbers. Plus, Brianna and I will share our election result predictions. That's exciting. Yeah, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm, and don't forget, our parent company, Nexstar, will have live election coverage of the 2022 midterms for all you politics addicts out there. <laughs> November 8th, News Nation will be broadcasting live starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And they're partnering, partnering with Decision Desk HQ to call the big races. They also have journalists from across the country, including some of us at the Hill. Mm, and of course, we'll have post-election coverage for you right here on Rising. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.